اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى ال سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم Okay so let's continue with this text Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim The servant's ego inclines towards shaitan because shaitan brings forth the things that it wants So the devil he combines three things he, so this is this is what I want to highlight here Ibn al-Qayyim mentions So shaitan so, so the devil shaitan the ego the nafs and desires hawa bring the three controlling powers they join services against this, uh, join forces against the servant with members of the body which are only subjugated instruments so ibn qayyim rahimahullah is mentioning here this is just a general principle to understand is that some some scholars say that the true enemy of the heart who's all, is going to be either shaitan or the nafs some take the nafs and they break it down into two categories they call it um, the um, they include um, uh, hawa, like whim and de- whim, and they include um, um, like shahwa and desires, uh, sort of as, a, as underneath the nafs. Some put it together. Um, uh, so the, Ibn al-Qayyim he's separating them. There's shaitan, there's the nafs, and hawa. The nafs is like that uh, sort of animalistic desire that is within us that craves certain things. And hawa is like a whim that uh, it, it varies from person to person and from time to time. So the nafs, everyone has the same sort of nafsi desires, right? Lust, uh, the desire to talk uh, you know, uncontrollably, the um, you know, desire for the dunya, these sorts of things. These are all driven by the nafs. It's a, it's a constant across every single human being. Hawa is a bit more variable. Some people, you know, some desire comes into their mind or their heart that is not constant across other human beings. That's what, what's called hawa. So he says, these three things, shaitan, the nafs, and hawa, these three controlling powers join forces. They come together against the servant with the members of the body, which are only subjugated instruments. Um, okay, then he says, so he says, um, now that we understand, you have the heart and the opportunity the heart has to come to Allah, and now you have the enemies, including shaitan, the nafs, and hawa, that are now battling against each other. So then, it's beautiful, because now he's painting this picture, and then he says, all right, here we go, here comes Allah's help. All right? So he says, this is the servant's true state on earth. Now we know what we're dealing with. It requires the mercy of the Lord to come to the aid of the servant with some force and to support him through any means that will stand against the forces that seek his ruin. Right? Uh, he's saying, like, this is the battle that's occurring, and then here comes Allah's mercy to help support and, and scoop us and, and, and sort of guide us through. And so, he says, and so Allah sends him messengers and his book, and then he strengthens him with a noble angel that's poised against shaitan, the devil, while the devil sends his own command to the servant, the angel gives the servant the commandment of his Lord and makes it clear what ruin awaits him, uh, awaits him should he obey his foe. The battle's taking place. Right? Sometimes one wins out, the heart wins out. You make the right decision, right? And you choose to, make, you choose to do that one thing that's going to take the heart and elevate it to Allah. Sometimes the other. Sometimes you fail, you falter. Shaitan gets to me. The nafs gets to me. Hawa gets to me. Something that I shouldn't be doing gets to me. Sometimes one wins out, sometimes the other. However, victorious is he to whom Allah gives victory. And I think this is important to understand that this battle of 
my heart being challenged by nafs, shaitan, and hawa. And on the other hand, uh, sorry, this is my heart. And this attack that's coming from the outside, the only way I'm going to get through this, right? The only way I'm going to survive this battle and eventually reach that state in Jannah where I can see Allah, be with Allah, interact with Allah, is if Allah's mercy comes to me and it protects me. So this is what he's saying. Protected is he uh, to whom Allah Ta'ala grants protection. Then he continues. Um, I'm, I'm going to forward ahead to the next uh, section. So he just sort of describes, you know, I'm just going to separate these into, th- into three themes uh, so that it's easier for us to understand. Now he says, okay, uh, the next section is that, you know, um, Allah's help makes the path easy for us. Allah's mercy, it makes the path easy for us. When the servant is tested by what he is tested, it is said to him, do battle and strive against your foe, your enemy. And then it's said to him, here are troops. Ibn al-Qayyim is saying this. Here are troops. Take of them what you will. Here is armor. Wear of it what you will. Here are fortresses. Seek safety in any you wish. And hold your post to death because the outcome is near. The defense is easy. Right? Like Allah's desire is for us to succeed. It's not to fail. And ultimately, the army that's going to protect us against, that's going to protect against shaitan, us against shaitan, who's trying to get into our heart in some way, shape, or form, and nafs, and ego, the army that's there to protect it, that army is from who? It's from Allah. And you can imagine the army of Allah is going to be more powerful than any other army. And that's just the beauty of, I mean, that's just the incredible mercy of Allah that he's set up the system in this way. So the way Ibn al-Qayyim is describing the situation, he's saying, when the servant is tested by what he's tested, it's said to him, look, I have all of this for you for this warfare. Take whatever you want from it. You want the sunnah? It's available. Here's the Quran to guide you along the way. Here are, people of, here's, here are messengers to, 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 um, to become models, physical models or human models of how you can navigate this battle and win. You know, here is, uh, here is this support and that support. I mean, you can do this. You can do this, right? So when the servants tested by what he's tested, it said to him, do battle and strive against your foe. Here are troops. Take of them what you will. Here is armor. Wear of it what you will. Here are fortresses. Seek safety in any you wish. And hold your post to death because the outcome is near. The defense is easy. You know, the final point he's saying is like, you know, just hold on tight. Like the Prophet says, hold on to the rope of Allah. You just have to hold on for a, for a little while. If you can hold on, it doesn't matter what's charging your way or what attacker is coming your way or what enemy is coming, shaitan, you're not, just hold on for a period of time, in particular to your iman. Because if you hold on, the outcome is near, the defense is easy. You'll get through this. You'll get through this. Just understand that this this con, this. This is the setup that has been created, but recognize the support that's coming from Allah is, is incredible. Now, what's even more interesting is to think about like this setup. I mean, it could have been the first half is there. You have the heart, ability to become close to Allah, distance from Allah, and then you have all these attackers, shaitan, nafs, hawa. You have to figure out how you're going to take this heart and elevate it and protect it from all of these things. It's on you. Right? But Ibn al-Qayyim is saying, like, it's not all on you. You don't have to figure this out. The, 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 the military strategy against these three things has been figured out for you. It's been presented to you by Allah. It's in clear, uh, plain, plain, clear text. You just have to execute with all of the support. In fact, all of this is being given to you. And this is Allah's mercy as well. 
right? He could have just left, he could have created human beings and said, figure it out. Let's see what happens at the end of the day. Let's see if you can figure out the, the best model to live your life. Let's see if you can battle shaitan and nafs. But subhanAllah, Allah's mercy is such that he, he, he made the path so clear to us. He says, it is as if, <laughs> subhanAllah, it is as if you were with a great king who sends you messengers to lead you to his home where you will find rest from the struggle. Now he's transitioning into this idea that Jannah is in sight. He separates you from your enemy and lets you roam through his noble abode wherever you wish. Then he imprisons your enemy in the most tightly sealed cell and there you see him in the very prison, Jahannam, he had hoped to place you in, its doors locked beyond rescue or relief. You know, he's creating this picture this, uh, that not only is a path easy, but look at, look, at, look at the end, it's in sight. You know, Allah Ta'ala's, uh, it's like a great king, you know, and you have these people that are attacking you from all sides, and the king says, hold on, and he sends all of his troops and his messengers there to take you and then walk you along the way so that you're protected from, you know, whatever's coming your way, paintballs, arrows, you know, whatever there might be. It's, you're protected along the path. I mean, depending on what team you're on, I guess. <laughs> And these troops are taking you to the abode of Allah, which is Jannah, so that we can be with Allah and we can interact with Allah, we can see Allah and finally just be with Allah for, forever. So he says, I'll just read it. It is as if you are with a great king who sends you messengers to lead you to his home where you will find rest from struggle, meaning you, this, this world is designed to be a test and there is a bit of a battle involved and that's going to cause you to fatigue, spiritually fatigue, mentally fatigue, emotionally fatigue. That's fine. Why? He separates you from your enemy. The separation is going to occur. That day of judgment is a day of separation where that challenge, that test is now over. He'll separate you from your enemy and he lets you roam through his noble abode wherever you wish. You're now in the king's abode. Jannah says, Do, go, f roam freely. You know, this entire dominion, this is, this is for you, you to, to, to experience. Then he imprisons your enemy in the most tightly sealed cell. And there you see him in the very prison he hoped to place you in, which is Jahannam. Its doors locked beyond rescue or relief. You can't get in there and he can't get out. It's done. Then he continues, this final section for, for this session. You, however, um, find yourself in a place, meaning now you see, you see the, you know, the, your enemy, Shaitan, is locked up. Now he's talking about us while we're there. You, however, find yourself in a place containing all that your soul had longed for. Going back to the heart, the, soul, the heart being at the focal point of the soul, you, however, find yourself in a place containing all that your soul had longed for and all that gives delight to your heart. The natural fitrah of the human being is to want to be with Allah in Jannah. That's what the heart wants. Yes, there's challenges along the way, but ultimately this is where it wants to be. You know, um, the soul in general, the way it's designed, it finds this peace and contentment when it's with Allah. You know, you ask anyone who's um, you're just speaking with people over the last one or two days here, you know, there's a sense of peace that's sort of descending. We feel it. We all feel it upon all of us over the last, you know, day or so. 
but why is that? You know, why is it that we're like, you know, it's because every single aspect of, of this retreat, for instance, is supporting the soul's elevation to Allah. Be it the talks, the dhikr, the Qur'an, the brotherhood, the sisterhood, the bonding, um, the, the, the relatively absent sin, right? I mean, the one fitna which is plaguing all of us, which is the internet and, and the devices, for the most part, have disappeared. Uh, and then it's really the presence of nature, the angels that are surrounding all the gatherings that are occurring, the meals where people are connecting with one another, these things are all heavenly and they're elevating the soul because these are all, this is what the soul wants and craves and it, and it, it finally receives this sense of contentment when it's doing those things that are heavenly or godly, you can say. So this is what Jannah is going to be like, except to the nth degree. This setup here, this is, like, this is just a, a sampling of it, what Jannah could be like. You're with the people you want to be with. You're with your family. You're with your children. You're happy. You're content. You're, uh, you're, you're feeling at peace. You're not distracted by things that are just plaguing you. Those things that attract us so much, these fitnas you know, uh, that, that everyone has their own struggle with, like, it's funny because those are the things that we are, our nafs craves and desires, but the reality is the heart hates those things. It's what brings us down and depresses us and creates sadness and loneliness. You remove all of those things that the nafs is craving and desiring and shaitan is leading toward, and all of a sudden the soul feels elevated. This is what Jannah is about. So we almost, in this sort of a program, we get a glimpse of Jannah, uh, a taste of Jannah, if you will. So he says, you know, you, find, you, however, find yourself in a place containing all that your soul had longed for. This is what it wants anyway. And all that gives delight to your heart. Such, subhanAllah, such is the recompense for your endurance and constancy throughout that brief period. This is the reward that you get. You know, there's many rewards, but one reward that's occurring here is that your soul gets to be where it wants to be, which is a place of contentment, happiness, what it's been desiring. He says, no more than an hour had come and gone, and then it was as if adversity had never existed. You know, it's amazing because all of the toil and trial that exist, either in the form of shaitan battling us, our nafs battling us, or in the form of the difficulties that Allah has sent us to see how we respond. All of the, the back and forth, tug of war that occurs in this world, none of this lasts more than an hour. It comes and goes, and then it was as if, subhanAllah, it was as if adversity had never existed. Right? I mean, this is, this is the explanation behind the hadith of the Prophet where he says that you know, the person who experienced, uh, this, is, this is sahih hadith, that a person who experienced in this world the most amount of difficulty and trial in this world, the most amount, like imagine the person who had the worst life imaginable because they were just tested immensely and uncontrollably. And in the Day of Judgment, Allah Ta'ala will take that person and He will dip them into Jannah for just a moment and He'll take them out. And then He'll ask that individual, uh, it'll be asked of that individual, did you experience any difficulty whatsoever in, in your life? And that person will respond, most certainly, I, I don't recall any difficulty whatsoever. Because a moment of the experience of Jannah, a moment, in fact, the wording in Arabic, it's not like, it's not even a time period where that's tangible. It's a moment, the Arabic. It's not a minute, three minutes, an hour. The Arabic word is a moment. Um, and then that, that person's pulled up and is asked, 
do you remember anything from this world that you struggled with? And that person will respond and say, I don't remember anything. Meaning a moment of the experience of Jannah, where the soul is so quickly with its Lord, is so powerful that it wipes away the memory of an entire lifetime worth of difficulty and trial and tribulation. So, um, you know, this is what he's saying, right? This is the explanation of that. Such is the recompense for your endurance and constancy during that brief period, i.e. This, this thing we call life. And it is brief. It's brief, right? I mean, subhanAllah, like, uh, you, you, if, if we were to ask one another how long is life, we might say, oh, it's taking a while. If we had the opportunity to ask anyone in their grave for the last thousands and thousands of years, how long was your life? Every single person's answer would be, wow, that was short, right? Whether they had a great life, a difficult life, everyone will say the same thing. I have no idea where that time went. Life is short. Um, and so no more than an hour had come and gone, and then it was as if, as if adversity had never existed. So the challenge is brief. The struggle is, is, is short. Yes, it's difficult when we're in it. But when you look back and we're all together in Jannah, you think we're going to remember any of this? I mean, when... Uh, when we're with Allah and our soul is with Allah and it's interacting with all of these things, I mean, the beauty of, of it is that we don't even have to remember this world, right? We don't have to remember it. Not, and all of that just becomes just a, not even, a, I can't even say it's a distant memory because, there, you know, any recollection of trial, difficulty, ter, ter, toil, even wherever it may be, this, this memory, Allah Ta'ala, so, you know, his, his Jannah is so powerful, it wipes away all of those memories. So we'll conclude, inshallah, with this section. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make, uh, make us from amongst those who, um, who, uh, for whom the path is easy. May Allah Ta'ala allow us to recognize the reality of our heart and those paths and enemies that are trying to attack our heart. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to appreciate the shortness of this life, the brevity of this life, and allow us to um, to earn his pleasure and his company and his and the sight of him in the akhirah wa akhirah da'wana and alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen um, we're partly ending this this uh, the text part early because there's a lot of questions that I need to catch up on so I'm going to begin to do that if you have additional questions the note cards are scattered uh, please pass them up uh, we're taking the sisters note cards first and then we'll address the brothers inshallah By the way, this section, this chapter, if anyone ends up reading this book, this section that Ibn al-Qayyim talks about, the nafs, the physical nature, members of the body, it's such a complicated chapter. I think, I mean, I, I had to review this, like, I can't tell you how many times. I even had other people review it for me to try to make sense of it. It's so deep. Uh, but if you, ha if you ever have the opportunity to just read, um, I, I would strongly encourage it. I tried to simplify it and just pick the portions that seem um, easy to, to digest and understand. So there's one question here about um, how, to re how do you recognize people that have taqwa? Um, and uh, for one, you know, the reality is what lies within people's hearts, uh, only Allah knows. So this is the reason that we generally can't pass judgment on what's within a person's heart. And we as human beings are only given the ability to assess what is... Um, apparent on the outside, the external. So the general ideas to think about uh, is if you're, tr and I assume you're asking this question because you're looking to 
um, or in the company of people that have taqwa, not because you intend to pass judgment on anyone. And if that's the case, you know, a few things that usually stand out. One is that the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ should be a readily apparent uh, on this individual. All the inward sunnahs, all the outward sunnahs should be readily apparent because someone who has taqwa is going to recognize that the path to Allah is through the Prophet ﷺ. That's number one. Number two is that generally speaking, when you interact with, this, with these people, uh, your heart, sorry, you yourself um, feel, uh, sorry, you yourself are reminded of Allah. You know, when you see this person, when you sit with them, you are reminded of Allah. And another measure is that when you're with this person, all you can do is think about Allah. And when you're separated from this person, you almost sense a distance from Allah. This is, you know, akin to the hadith of, uh, uh, of the Prophet of, uh, of Sayyidina Hamdala radiallahu anhu, who, you know, when he, he himself says that when he felt distance from the Prophet وسلم, he would feel a certain way. And when he would be in the company of the Prophet he'd be a certain way. Like he felt closer to Allah. He felt more attached, etc., etc. Uh, and then Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu hears Hanzala's complaint and he says, hey, I feel the same way. So the Sahaba perceived this as well. So this exists to this day. Obviously, there's no Prophet of Allah anymore, but to some degree, the people of Taqwa, when you're with them, you're reminded of Allah, you yourself feel like you're closer to Allah and you're encouraged toward those things that Allah Ta'ala wants. And when you're physically separated from them, i.e. your heart is separated from their heart, there's a, separ- a noticeable difference in that, in that separation. Uh, you mentioned the angels don't increase and decrease in rank, meaning the darajat, which is the elevating, elevation and rank, and darakat, which is like a descent. Are human beings the only entities in creation that can increase and decrease in rank? Yes, uh, and, and, and uh, ins and jinn. Uh, but in terms of animals, other creation, etc., there's no elevation. This is stationary. Allah Ta'ala placed them at a place. The angels cannot change in their rank either. They're, they're stationary. Okay, how does one effectuate the love of Allah Ta'ala without getting the limbs on board. Some people, some people struggle and are stuck in inability to do anything and improve. How do you change that and spark a change in stagnancy? Uh, how does one effectuate the love of Allah without getting the limbs on board? The, the question of stagnancy, which is that I feel stationary, um, it's important to recognize that there's periods of times where I'm going to strive and there's periods of times where I'm going to um, kind of be stuck. And um, in the science of the soul, this is called qabd and bast, where there's this expansion where I really feel like I'm on top of things. And then there's periods of constriction where I don't really feel the emotions and the experiences that I should be getting with reciting Quran and salah and things like that. And this experience is actually a test from Allah. So, uh, you know, sometimes think, worship and ibadah feels great, and that's a gift from Allah. Sometimes it doesn't feel great, and that's a test from Allah, saying, are you going to continue to do this, even if you don't feel good as you're doing it? You don't feel the chill down your spine, the encouragement, etc. When you go to the masjid, you come back, and you're like, nah, I didn't feel anything, right? That's a test from Allah, saying that you're not doing this for feelings, you're doing this for me. Let's see if you can actually continue and push through this. And eventually, the expansion of qabd comes, uh, the, sorry, the expansion comes, uh, and that, that fluctuates, qabd and bust will fluctuate. In terms of, in general, how do I get the limbs on board, you know, in terms of driving myself and energizing myself towards deeds, um, I think the dhikr of Allah Ta'ala is incredibly powerful to focus on the heart, but when it comes to striving towards deeds, I really do think that company is essential. 
And if you're with the company of people, for instance, who are praying to Hajjid, you're going to pray to Hajjid. You spend time in the company of people that come to the masjid for every prayer, inevitably you'll show up to the masjid for every prayer. Um, I, I think we underestimate the power of, of company. Uh, the Prophet ﷺ said, You'll be on the deen of your friend. If your friend's deen is strong, your deen will be strong as well. So that's one answer to that question. What tangible measures can we undertake to prevent love of a particular station or maqam or state of being such as fana or baqa? Ensuring attainment of Allah Ta'ala is the goal itself, not losing the forest from the trees. Okay, so this question is asking, um, sometimes there's a state that, Allah, that we will experience because Allah Ta'ala will, will elevate ourselves through our worship and Allah's mercy to a particular state. There's a state called fana, there's a state called baqa. Uh, fana is a state uh, that is when a person um, feels so connected to Allah Ta'ala that all they want to do is worship Allah, they want to just think about Allah, they want to talk about Allah, they just want to disconnect from the dunya completely. And this is one state that a person reaches uh, in their spiritual development. The state after fana is called baqa. And baqa is when a person now sort of returns back. So when a person's in fana, they almost... Uh, they have a hard time interacting with the world because they're so lost in Allah. But that's not the final goal. That's just a path along the way. And for anyone you know who's experienced fana, it's uh, it's a it's a very unique experience because you're like I I mean all I all I care about is Allah, and I'm just so in love with Allah, and that's all I want to do. But it's not practical. A person can't stay in a state of fana because inevitably the rights of people will end up being compromised because they're so focused on this. And, and, and they're sort of um, disconnected from the reality of this world, which is, which is all about social networks and connections. So then the next phase after fana and a person's development is that they reach a state called baqa. And baqa is now when you return back to society spiritually. So now your heart is still as connected to Allah Ta'ala as it was in a state of fana, except the outside person wouldn't be able to notice a difference. Baqa is when you interact freely with people, but the heart is purely connected with Allah. And you interact with our scholars and our mashayikh and our ulama, the Prophet ﷺ, of course, being the pinnacle of this, the Prophet's heart was fully connected to Allah, in love with Allah. All he could do was want to please Allah. But any outsider who would look at the Prophet ﷺ would see him interacting, eating, enjoying, recreation. You know, he would just be normal with people. And so that's what the state of baqa essentially is. So the question here is, uh, what are some tangible measures that can prevent love of a particular station? Uh, I don't think there's a... The, 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 idea is, the idea is never to attain a station. The stations are from Allah. That's not something we seek. Our, our, our goal is always going to be the pleasure of Allah in anything that we do. We try to make the right decision when it comes to our heart, what's going to take us to Allah, what's going to take us away from Allah, and take the steps toward Allah. It's up to Allah Ta'ala the rest of the experience along the way. Fana, baqa, whatever you want to call it. You don't need to give names to it, right? Whatever Allah Ta'ala, at that point it doesn't matter. The goal is Allah and the sunnah of the Prophet to get to Allah. And as long as we're doing those two things, whatever experiences come along the way, they come along the way. And if anyone struggles with the experience because they don't know how to handle something in that experience, that's when you have to go to your shaykh or your teacher and, and seek counsel on, well, I'm here in the state and I just never want to get out of it. Or now I'm in the state and my family's complaining about it. What do I do? And that's the responsibility of the teacher to guide you further. Are there certain times, about 10 minutes left for this, are there certain times in the day that it is best to do muraqabah? How often should we do muraqabah? Muraqabah, which is the dhikr of the heart. Muraqabah yuraqibu takes the meaning of um, attending to or watching over something. It's an exercise. So this is not a goal. Salah is a goal. 
reciting Quran is a goal. Um, following Sunnah Prophet is a goal. Muraqaba is an exercise that enhances our ex- uh, enhances the rest of our worship, right? Which is the goal ultimately. Um, the best times of day to do muraqaba, from um, gen- it depends. I mean, for, it should be a time where you're able to focus and be left alone. So for most people, the early morning is a really good time. If you're not a morning person, then I, I wouldn't recommend it. But if you're a morning person especially, uh, you should start your day off with at least 10 or 15 minutes of muraqaba. There's two, a few reasons for it. Number one is that if you get it done in the morning, then you don't have to stress about when I'm going to get it done later in the day. Because then the rest of the day, it's nagging you. It's kind of like, uh, you know, um, any other, like your recitation of Qur'an. If, if everyone has a goal every day to read Qur'an, it's best to do it first thing in the morning so that it's done for the day. And, you don't, and then anything extra just becomes extra. The other reason to do it in the day, is, the beginning of the day, is because it's a nice reset as you begin your day. Uh, it's interesting because you talk to anyone who teaches meditation and mindfulness, and they'll all say the same thing, that the best time that this should occur is in the day when you first wake up in the morning. In fact, the trainers in this spend hours and hours meditating. Uh, and we're believers of Allah and, and, and followers of the Prophet you know, We should be able to find a few minutes in the morning to, to, to engage in a meditative practice that is established firmly in, the, in, in, the, in our tradition. So the morning is the best time. How often? Once a day. You, know, uh, you don't want to be spending hours doing this, but once a day. Uh, maybe for 10 minutes or so. And if you have the ability on weekends, time off, vacation, itikaf in the masjid, things like that, then you want to spend more time. I remember when we did itikaf, like uh, we were in a, when I was in um, Zambia for itikaf there, it's a 10-day program and it's, it's a very immersive spiritual experience. I think we spent six, seven, eight hours a day doing muraqaba. Um It was incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful. I mean, it's incredibly powerful. But again, those things should not happen when you have responsibilities toward your spouse, your children, your parents, your work, that should happen when you've dedicated time for it, like ideally in an Ertikaf type setting.